0: good morning Arcadia if you are uh, new here today this is your first time I am uh, f- my name is Frank I am Frank and I'm um, the uh, the regular teaching pastor here I was going to say normal but that would mean that Sean Myers is not normal and so I don't I didn't want to label him that way so um, anyway I am usually the one that's up here every five or six weeks you'll see Sean Myers who did the announcements and I uh, uh, and occasionally you'll see somebody else, like I think in May we're going to have Schrader come in here from, uh, from uh, Gilbert, so he might be here as well. But normally you will see uh, me here, and we are uh, walking our way through the book of Romans verse by verse, and so if you have a Bible uh, or, or, a, or a phone app or something, maybe you want to use the Bible that's in front of you in the chairs, you can just turn to Romans chapter 1, that's where we're going to be uh, today, well, we are going to have a two-part sermon <clears throat> Sunday and next Sunday Uh, and the reason is because uh, what we have to unpack in these two verses verses 26 and 27 uh, is pretty layered and pretty complex and so we wanted to take a couple of weeks uh, to be able to do that so uh, we're going to be dealing primarily with the issue of homosexuality these next two weeks, and so this week what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the theology of homosexuality and in fact really the theology of all sexual sin. and then next week we're going to talk about a Christian attitude or a Christian response to homosexuality, uh, how the church should maybe be uh, entering this conversation and responding to people in the midst of this uh, situation. So uh, I will say that our stance on homosexuality will not surprise most of you. Uh, We believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God now and forever and so our teaching on homosexuality is going to be what scripture says and I know that many of you uh, acknowledge this. But I also know that for many of you, what we'll be saying in these next two weeks is going to be brand new to you. Uh, Maybe you're a new Christian and you haven't encountered this yet. Or maybe you've been around church for a long time, but you've never been in a church that deals with uh, with this issue or with these passages. Uh, this is one of the reasons why at Redemption we like to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse because in doing so we can't uh, uh, avoid difficult issues and we also can't just get up here and, and preach our favorite stuff every week either. In other words, by preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, we must preach the full counsel of God's word and so that's why we do that. So this may be new to some of you for one reason or another, but there are also going to be people here we fully Knowledge who, who understand these, that these passages are in the Bible, but you have decided for one reason or another that on this issue of homosexuality, the Bible is antiquated in our, our day. And so these next two weeks are going to challenge you to think about this issue in a different way than you have been thinking about it. And also, I want you to consider this, it has always been a challenge to talk about this topic. I mean, mean, even in the first century, it was a challenge to talk about this topic, but it is especially touchy now, and here's why. Our culture, just recently, our culture has moved very quickly and very emphatically toward what some would call normalizing homosexuality, that's that's other people's word, not my word. And we've moved very quickly toward that. And so we are going to have some tension. Now, some of you might say, well, wait a minute. Don't we have every tension every Sunday when we preach the gospel? Isn't that, doesn't that bring tension? And, and certainly that does. But usually it's not the kind of tension that is driven by such high-profile awareness and controversy as we have surrounding uh, this issue, especially today. And I have just a few more preliminary remarks before we actually get into the text that I think will be helpful for us. Um, If you're here today and you have or have had feelings of same-sex attraction or affection, or you just uh, flat-out self-identify yourself as a gay person, there are a couple things I want to acknowledge right up front. First of all, thank you for being here. I appreciate the fact that you are here and that you felt uh, okay to be able to come in here, and, and I hope that you understand that you are welcome here. We, we, we are glad that you are here. But, but I also want to say this. Clearly, not enough people who identify themselves as homosexuals know or have known Christians who truly love them the way Christ would love them. The church has often dropped the ball here. And I want to just confess on behalf of the church, whatever church it is, that some of us have been toxic, harsh, insensitive, and dismissive. Not all Christians, but certainly some. And you might even say, no, many have been. And I confess that to you, and and I just ask your forgiveness. But also, you may be here... And you may be anxious about this topic because while you yourself do not struggle with homosexuality, you have a family member or a friend who is, who is gay, and you aren't sure that the church or the Bible has anything helpful to say about this issue at all. Well, me too. I, I have a sister who has self-identified as a lesbian for 35 years, and for the past 30-plus years has been in a relationship with another woman living uh, in the same home. I also have a great many friends, some people that I would consider very good friends of mine who are gay. And these are friends whom I care deeply for and I care very much about. And and, and so there's tension even with me as I stand here and, and talk about this. And so I want you to understand, I am not just speaking into this I am right in the middle of this, just like many of you are. And so we're going to do our very best to approach this topic well. But we also have a responsibility to approach this subject the way we would any. And so many of you are going to be challenged in myriad ways. There are going to be challenges to many of you today that you weren't even expecting. And and there's a possibility that some of you are going to be offended, and, and I understand that. And my hope and prayer is that if you are offended, you are not offended by us or by the church, but that you are offended by the gospel, even though you may take it out on us. And I understand that, and we're prepared for that, and that's okay. We get that. But as biblical Christians, if we don't teach this, then I would say we are hypocrites, and you should question our integrity. Also, we must remember that every person, every single person, to one degree or another, experiences challenge and frustration whenever there is any biblical teaching on any part of sexuality. All of us. All of us. God challenges all of us in our sexual practices. And the two verses we look at specifically today, 26 and 27, are about homosexuality, but they are embedded in a passage that discusses many sins. And the root of all of these sins is the one cancer of everything. It's a combination and amalgamation of self-centeredness, pride, and idolatry. That's at the root of everything. That is the cancer of everything. And so if you're here this week and next week, and you are, let's say you're addicted to pornography, but you think, oh, they're going to be talking about homosexuality, I'm off the hook this week, think again. God is going to challenge you these next two weeks. If you're fornicating, If you're engaged in sex outside of marriage, God has something to say to you these two weeks. If you're filled with pride or are idolatrous, you're gonna be confronted by this text. But the good news is that in Christ, by Christ, because of Christ, we can have deliverance. Not without life disruption, not without some pain, a lot of perseverance, and a need for steadfastness, but deliverance nevertheless. Here's how Wesley Hill, a man with very strong homosexual desires, attractions, and temptations, but who also desires to live by the power of the gospel, here's how he states it in his book, Washed and Waiting. From God's perspective, our homoerotic inclinations are like the craving for salt of a person who is dying of thirst. Yet when God begins to try to change the craving and give us the living water that will ultimately quench our thirst, we scream in pain, protesting that we were made for salt. The change hurts. And that, of course, could be said about any of us in the midst of any of our sins. So let's get started with some textual work. And and here's what I want to do. It is critically important to understand 26 and 27 within the context of the greater passage. And so I want to read through the greater passage and make a few comments and set up our context uh, before we dive in specifically to 26 and 27. So go back to verse 16. Let's start there. That's from a couple of weeks ago now. And understand next week we'll talk about 26 and 27 as well. And then the following week I'm going to talk about verses 28 through 32. So really, we're having five or six weeks of of preaching on this one passage and connecting all of these dots. So Paul writes, starting in verse 16, this is when he starts to dive into the body of the letter to the church at Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he sets this whole conversation up by saying the gospel is the answer to everything because that is the only place in which we find power. Then he goes into the trouble that we are all in. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, now, he's gonna go on to explain what he means by this, but let me just say that Sean did a great job of unpacking this last week. That word suppress, the way we suppress the truth, it literally means to bind something up. And, and, And he talked about that, but then he used this word picture that I thought was just perfect. What we as human beings do in our corruption, in our fallenness, in our sin, we know the truth of God. We see it. Empirically, it is clear that the truth of God exists. But what we choose to do instead is we hogtie it and then we set it aside and we believe that by hogtying the truth of God and setting it aside, we are now able to live in freedom. And Paul says that's exactly what we do. And you think you're going to live in freedom, but that freedom leads to disaster, destruction, disappointment, misery. And so he goes on to explain that, starting in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been, uh, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, that he has made. So they are without excuse. You and I are without excuse when we hogtie the truth and set it aside. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's what Paul is saying. God created the universe and there is a divine order to everything and that order is good but in our corruption and in our fallenness and in our sin we prefer the disorder and the disorder flies in the face of God's created order and and, and part of that disorder is that we quit worshiping God and we begin to just worship ourselves we determine that we are God and that we are on the throne of the universe now we would never say that out loud because we know that is ridiculous but that's how we behave That's how we manifest our behavior, that's how we relate to others, and that's how we relate to ourselves. And Paul is merely pointing that out. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Now, the, word, the Greek word that's translated gave them up, paradokon. This becomes a key word in this passage because Paul says this three different times. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. And so it, it is around this idea that, Paul, that God gave us up that Paul builds this entire passage. And so we need to understand what that means. And I'm going to spend in a few minutes quite a bit of time unpacking that uh, for us. So therefore, God gave them up to the lust of, uh, uh, gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And, li- and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty, the due penalty for their error. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about what that means, the due penalty in themselves for their error. And make no mistake, verses 26 and 27 clearly talk about uh, both male and female homosexuality. And then verse 28, the third time that that Paul says that God gave us up. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he lists, in addition to all of the other sin he's already talked about in this passage, he lists 21 more vices or sins or whatever word you want to attach to it that we do as a result of this disordered worship that we have uh, given ourselves to in this world. And here are those sins. He says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then verse 32 becomes a critical verse for us. We'll spend more time on it next week and the week after, but it's important. He wraps this up by saying this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, and the word die there means uh, spiritual death. They deserve to be separated from God forever because God is holy, and those who practice these things are not. He says, uh, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So here is Paul saying, not only is it a sin to do these things, but it is also a sin for the person who is standing on the sideline not doing those things, but who is cheering on and advocating those who are. Now that's going to that's start to stir some stuff for all of us as well. It's not enough for us to just walk away from sin, we also have to walk away from advocating sin in others. And so here's what Paul is saying. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created the universe and there was an order to his creation and his creation was good. At the end of every day, he said it is good, it is good, it is good, and then he created humanity and he said it was very good. But then in Genesis 3, the serpent comes along and deceives the woman and the man into violating the only order rule the only law that God gave the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat from that tree. And the serpent got them to do it. And so they did it because they knew that they, that they were told, they were deceived by the servant, serpent, that they would become like God if they ate the fruit. And so they disobeyed God. And they committed the first sin, the original sin. And when that happened, everything fell apart. Everything became disordered. And you and I became corrupted. We were born into corruption. You and I are born into sin. We are born into a state where we are already separated from God because of our sin nature and because of the corruption that that Adam and Eve have handed down over the years to us. And as a result, everything is disordered. And so Paul says... Created order is very good. Everything that we do in our corruption, in our sin, is disordered and a problem and flies in the face of that. And so because of the disordering of creation and because that leads us to a disordered worship through selfishness, pride, and idolatry, three times Paul says that God gave them up. Verses 24, 26, and 28. Paradoxon. Literally what that means is that God removed his caring and guiding hand from us, and the reason he did it is because we asked him to do it. We told him, we said, you're too restrictive, you're too narrow. I don't like to submit to you. I want to be God. And we tell him, get get away, get away, get out of my, quit, quit, quit trying to be God in my life. And eventually what he does is he answers that prayer, and he says, okay, you think you can do it better? then go right ahead. And this is really important because many people look at this passage and they go, well, this is good news. This is actually good news. God is releasing me now to be free. And, And they sort of have this idea that, that it's, it's like they're a porcelain pitcher out in space. And God has been holding them as a porcelain pitcher out in space where there's no gravity. And now God is just going to let them go. And, and, and this porcel- you, this porcelain pitcher, you, out in space without any gravity, now you're just going to be able to, to float free and easy and carefree and have this life of tremendous freedom without a care in the world. And it's going to be easy and you're going to be in charge of your own destiny. No. This is God releasing his caring and guiding hand because that's what we wanted him to do, but it doesn't lead to a freedom that's carefree and easy. It leads to bitter and unintended consequence. Rather than being released in space, the porcelain pitcher is released here on earth where gravity and natural law take over and what happens to the porcelain pitcher is it becomes smashed on the ground. Now, I know that for many of you, you're like, that offends me that God is gonna let me go and smash my life. Remember, you and I asked him to do that. And he's saying, you know, the consequence of this is not going to be because I've done anything wrong. It's because I've given you what you want. That's what's happening. And so it's our fault. And I know that's hard for us to see. We hate that. We think we know better. We think we're in control. We think we have it figured out. But we're deceived. We're deceived by our own corruption and our foolishness. The reality is that we have exchanged truth for lies, and we've exchanged wisdom for folly. We've inserted our wisdom where God's wisdom should be, and that's actually folly. Now, all of us have had this happen to us before at one time or another. In fact, we've been on both sides of this. But if you ever watch someone go down a path that they are absolutely sure about, but you have the backstory and you know that they are headed toward heartache and destruction, but they are determined to go down this path, and you'll even try to warn them, and they scoff at you, and they say, don't you worry, I got it, just get out of here, I am fine, I got it and then they suffer the consequence of their own folly. Well, understand, they got what they wanted, and they got you to stay out of it. Well, God has all the backstories, every one of them. And he's the creator of this universe, and so he knows exactly how it works. And so when we tell him we know what's better, it's foolishness. But in our corruption, in our fallenness, in our deceit, Our self-deceit, we simply cannot imagine that to be true. We say things like, well, I know myself better than anyone, better than God. I know my context better than anybody. My experience and my reality, that is truth. Nobody else's truth. No other truth is going to be mine. My experience and my reality. And so many people just want God out of their lives. Hands off, they say. Well, eventually he's going to answer your prayer and give you exactly what you want. And so the question becomes, verse 18, God releases his wrath from the heavens. How does God release his wrath? Ironically, he releases by his wrath by giving us what we want. He doesn't even have to do anything. Wrath here is not fireballs from heaven. It's not a building falling on us. It's, it's not explosions and fire and, and stuff like that. No, 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 no. It is him giving us what we asked for. Get out of our lives. But listen, here's here's the good news about this. You're going, really, there's good news? Yeah. If you know your theology, you also realize that while this is devastating, it is also for some the first step toward redemption. God taking his hand away from us is not the first step to hell for some people, as this passage has been incorrectly taught in the past by other people. Not at this church, but I've heard this taught this way. That's the first step toward hell for somebody when God releases his hand. No, 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 no. If you know your theology, you know that the person rebelling against God is already destined for hell. They were born in a state of separation from God. Rather, him releasing his hand is often, for many people, the first step toward redemption, the first step toward, rec- step toward reconciliation, the first step toward heaven. When God disciplines us by giving us what we want, by withdrawing His caring and guiding hand, for many people, when that happens, they look around and they begin to realize what life is actually like apart from God. And they say, you know what? I was wrong. I desperately need Jesus in my life. It's the most loving thing that God can do for some of us to just let us go. It's the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. Many of you know that story. There's the son. He's arrogant. He's obnoxious. He knows his own context. He knows himself. He, he says, my experience and my reality or truth, and he goes to his father gives him the metaphorical middle finger and says, I have no need of you except some of your stuff I would like to take with me, but I have no need of you. Disrespects his father. His father does the loving thing. He says, okay. Hands him some stuff and says, you're on your own. And sometime later, this son wakes up in a pigsty covered in mud and realizes that he's not even eating as well as the pigs that he's taking care of And he comes to his senses and he says to himself, you know what? The people who are my father's servants, not even my brother, but my father's servants have a better life than I do. I'm gonna go back to my father and ask if I can be his servant. At least that will be better. And the father who represents God not only welcomes him back as a servant, but welcomes him back as an honored son and restores him completely. Romans 1 and Luke 15 are parallel passages in that respect. It's the story of the prodigal son. Now specifically, verses 26 and 27, now that we have that context, Paul says, "...for this reason God gave them up for dishonorable passions. Women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature." And the men likewise exchanged natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with other men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now before we uh, unpack all of this, I want to clear up one very common misunderstanding and error. Some people claim that Paul teaching this in the first century Mediterranean world did not take any courage because there was no homosexuality or lesbian in the first century Mediterranean world. So, the thinking goes, there was nobody around to challenge him on this teaching. They say that Paul is cherry-picking, that that, that this was grandstanding, that this was risk-free preaching and teaching, that he's just preaching to the choir, and you need to understand it's not even close to that. Homosexuality in the first century Greco-Roman Mediterranean society was not only rampant, but it was often promoted as much more preferred and better and advocated as a better lifestyle than heterosexuality. Uh, William Barclay, who is a historian and a, and a commentator, writes in one of his books what many historians and scholars have written. He points out that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were open and known gay men. And the reason it was they were open and known uh, to be gay was because they advocated as, as this as the preferred and better lifestyle than being a heterosexual. And so Paul lived in a culture just like ours where the majority of people not only tolerated and accepted homosexuality, but they advocated for it. That's why verse 32 is there and why it's so important for us to understand. Now, Paul says in verses 26 and 27 that what we do is we exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Literally, what we do is we take what was created to be used one way and we use it in a disordered, different way. That's literally what the Greek means. And as a result, we end up committing shameless acts. And the study here is, is very challenging, uh, not because it, wasn't, it was hard to figure out what it meant, but because when you realize what it means, it's, it's challenging literally it's what flies in the face of divine created order we commit shameless acts when we do things that fly in the face of obvious divine created order and just from a logical standpoint if you even begin to acknowledge that there is divine created order to fly in the face of it can't possibly end well I mean, you have to just acknowledge, whether you want to believe it or embrace it or not, you have to at least acknowledge that logical conclusion. And as a result, in themselves, they receive the due penalty. The due penalty is the raw consequence that comes when breaking order. And this is, I think, the most vexing and intriguing truth in this entire passage. The due penalty is being mired in the sin. It's being overwhelmed by the sin it's being enslaved to the sin that's the due penalty the due penalty is not fireballs from heaven the due penalty is not a building falling upon you the due penalty is not a a, a lightning bolt hitting you the due penalty is nothing active on the part of God doing something malicious and capricious to you the due penalty is just letting you have your way with your sin and then you become a slave to it and you end up in the misery of that now, now, for 20 years, I have had literally thousands of conversations about people's various sins that, that are essentially the same. I'm seeing the same movie, just different characters and different sins. Somebody will come in and say, I, I am addicted to pornography, which is a disorder of how God views sex, okay? It's disordered, all right? And, and they say, I'm, 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 I'm addicted to pornography. And they say, my family life is in shambles and my work life is in shambles because they discovered it on my computer at work. Now I don't have any economic viability, and I am miserable. And they have no idea how to get out of it. And of course, I'll present the gospel to them, and they'll go, "Uh, no, isn't there something else? No, there's nothing else. And as long as you have told God to take his hands off, and now you've got exactly what you want, you are mired in the misery of your own sin. That's your due penalty. Gambling, same thing. It's amazing how uh, since, uh, in the last 15 years, since the internet has gotten more popular, gambling addiction has become more and more prevalent. And so I sit with people all the time. I gambled away the, uh, the, the, the mortgage payment this month. I don't know what we're going to do. And here's the really bad part. I stole money from the company in order to place the bet. And now I don't know what to do. They're miserable. This is the due penalty for their error. Adultery. I sit with people who, you know, you get into adultery, and man, it's fun at first. Believe me, every sin has a season where it's really wonderful. But then the consequences start to come. I don't know how many times I have heard heard this line from somebody who's engaged in adultery. How did I get myself into this? Well, you cast off God. God. You bound up his truth and set it aside and said, I'm in charge of my life, not God. And you went and did this, and now you are receiving the due penalty. You're just miserable in your sin. It's the same thing for people in substance abuse. You could say this about every sin. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, The Problem of Pain, says it this way. The lost, those demanding their way by suppressing God's truth and rebelling against his way, Enjoy forever the horrible freedom of being self-enslaved. Enjoy forever the horrible freedom of being self-enslaved. Here's what Paul drives at. This is the big idea of this passage. And I wrote this down. I wanted to wordsmith this as well as I possibly could to get it as correct as I possibly could by the power of the Spirit. Okay. Here's the big idea. The deepest problem of our lives whether heterosexual or homosexual homosexual, is the terrible exchange of the glory of God for images, that's verse 23, the exchange of the truth of God for lies, that's verse 25, the exchange of natural relations for dishonorable passions, that's verse 26, and the simple fact that we have God in our knowledge, yet we fail to acknowledge and worship him, that is verse 28. And failed worship is our worst disorder. This is at the root of all the other disorders and difficulties. And now especially disordered is the exchange of the glory of God for images, particularly of ourselves. We have placed ourselves on God's throne. We've told him to get lost. We go up and assume his position on the throne of the universe and we begin to worship ourselves. We would never say that out loud because we know that we would be laughed out of the building, but that's exactly how we feel and that's exactly how we operate. We worship ourselves and we see the world and our desires only in terms of how they are going to serve us for our pleasure. And as a result, The beauty of heart worship has been destroyed, and therefore the disordering of our relation to God is dramatized in the disordering of our sexual relations with each other. And because the right ordering of our relationship to God was dramatized by heterosexual union in the covenant of marriage, that's Ephesians chapter 5, you should study that. The disordering of our relationship to God is dramatized by the breakdown of that heterosexual union. And homosexuality is the most vivid form of the breakdown of this disordered worship, although there are many other forms. But this is the one that Paul chooses to use as his his example because he claims that it is the most obvious one. It's very bold what what Paul does here. But, but... The reason he can be so bold is Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for life. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for sanctification. It is the power of God for everything. So there is hope. There is hope. All sexual sin, all disordering of life as God has intended it has deliverance, but there is only one deliverer, and that is Jesus Christ. If you want, just flip over. It's the next book over to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There is good news in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Some people look at this little paragraph I'm going to read to you and say this is an awful horrendous, offensive, bad news paragraph. It's not. Paul didn't write it for the bad news. He wrote it for the good news. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then here's the key verse, verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. If you know Christ, you are in that were category. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you know the Gospel, you have been washed. If you know the Gospel, you have been justified. If you know the Gospel, you have been sanctified. If you know the Gospel, you have been made righteous. There is hope and there is one deliverer. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, We need to recognize and understand, and Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians, actually. We need to recognize and understand how how unhealthy it is that we have in our culture, and this is not just in our culture, this is even in the church, in the Christian church. We have elevated sexual expression to the most important way that we build our identity and the primary means for us to find meaning and fulfillment in life. That's what we've done that is supreme over everything that we look at for identity and for meaning and purpose in life this isn't even close to what god intended sex is disordered worship in the worst way and let me tell you something else sex makes a terrible god terrible it will always let you down if that's where you're going to find meaning and purpose in life And it's not that sex isn't good and pleasurable. Listen, I haven't gotten one amen today. Can I get an amen there? Sex is good and... Okay, thank you very much. All right. It's not that sex isn't good and pleasurable. It's that we've disordered the good and made it dishonorable. We've chosen to build our identity on a foundation of sand. Sex. It's a house of cards. Now, I want to close with a couple of things, a couple of challenges for us. The first is the challenge of the way we define love in today's culture. I want to speak into that because I don't think that we've had the ability or the right or or the permission to speak into that as the church. I want to give you maybe a different definition of the word love than you've been hearing for the last several years in the public sphere. And I'm going to start here. I want to start with the relationship of understanding and agreement. So many people have determined that if you understand me, it means you will agree with me. And that couldn't be further from the truth, but it's, but it's the foundation on which they have, to, they have to get to the fact that if you love me, you're going to accept everything that I do. They have to start there. It's just not true. In fact, I would argue that very often the reason I disagree with you is because I do understand you. Or the reason you would disagree with me is because you do understand me. Understanding sometimes brings about disagreement. So understanding does not necessarily mean agreement. You can understand someone and not agree with them. Furthermore, if someone does not agree with you, it does not necessarily mean they don't understand you. Disagreement also does not mean that love is no longer in the relationship. If that were true, every single married couple in here would be experiencing a relationship in which there was no love, right? See, one of the most common myths about conflict is that people in conflict don't like each other. That's a common myth. Now, is it true that some people in conflict don't like each other? Yes, but it's not true of all. I would even say it's not true of the majority of people who are in conflict. Many, many times the reason they're in conflict is because they do like each other. They do love each other and they're sharpening each other and they're trying to bring each other along. The reality is that it is impossible to have an authentic relationship without some conflict. In other words, it is possible, it is possible to disagree with someone and still love them. In fact, it could be even a strong indication that there is love in the relationship if there's disagreement. A relationship is unsustainable if love is first and foremost defined by whether or not we agree. It's just unsustainable. So our challenge is this, the way the public sphere is currently composed, we no longer have a category for the ability to disagree with someone and still love them. That's not allowed. But we need to understand that paradigm is shallow, immature, narrow-minded, and will only lead to destruction. Avoiding conflict eventually leads to collapse every time. It's just the way it is. And let me tell you something. I I know that our favorite conflict resolution strategy is avoidance, but we also know that it never ends well when we do that. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and worse and worse and worse. And when you avoid conflict, what happens eventually is that you have this huge explosion that could have been controlled earlier on. So if you're someone, all right, you're someone, you're, you're, all of you, you're someone, whatever, whoever you are, you identify yourself however you are. You're a Christian, you're a secular humanist, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're an atheist, you're a Muslim you're an ASU graduate or a U of A graduate, whatever it is, if you are someone who has put this restriction on your ability to be in relationships that you must agree with me or we can't be in community, you will be sorely disappointed with how life turns out. And you probably won't have very many friends. And and when it comes to authentic love for each other, God says that we must first love him through Jesus. That is the first love. And then and only then, with an understanding of who God is and what His purpose is for our life and how much He loves us and how we can love Him, then are we able to love each other. Love is never defined by agreement. It is defined by commitment to and alignment with God. And so the way the culture has defined love today is simply too narrow and too restricted. You love me only if you agree with me and embrace everything I do. It's just not realistic. And what this should bring about for all of us is the fact that whenever love and truth meet, there is going to be some tension. There's just going to be tension. You can't have love and truth together without tension. So if we take love to mean whatever is best for you is best for you and I'll leave you be, that's not real love. And we all know that inherently, yet some of us have been deceived or maybe even intimidated into feeling differently. Love is deeper than that, and the reason that we do that, here's the reason why we do this. If we love each other in this shallow cultural way, you know what it does? It alleviates the tension, and that's why we're willing to submit to it. We don't like tension. We don't like tension. And so we say, all right, I'll love the way the culture says I'm supposed to love because then there won't be any tension. I'll never get to speak truth into anything, but at least there won't be any tension. Listen to this passage from the essay, Deeper Love. Christianity offers a more mature concept of love. Love is not fundamentally about a narrative of self-expression and self-realization. It's not about finding someone who completes me in which I assume that who I am is a given and that you love me authentically only if you respect me exactly as I am, as if I is somehow sacred. Christian love is not so naive. The love of faith loves people in their brokenness to be sure, but then invites people toward holiness. Through prayer and disciple-making, Christian love calls people to change, to repent. Christian love recognizes that our loved ones will know true joy only as they increasingly conform to the image of God, because God is love. This is why Jesus tells us that if we love him, we will obey his commands just like he loves the Father and so obeys the Father's commands. And there is tension in that. There is always tension when truth and love meet. So here you go. Rather than trying to alleviate tension, which is what some people think the job of the church is, I'm going to go to church and have all of my tension alleviated. Wrong idea of what a church is supposed to do. Rather than alleviating tension, I'm going to leave us with some. And it'll be good to wrestle with us this week before we come back next week. I'm going to ask you a few questions and then I'm going to quote out of a book and we'll be done. Okay? So here's the first question that's going to generate some, some tension now. As you've heard what we've said about the theology of homosexuality, number one, do you believe Scripture? Do you believe Scripture? Now, if you're not a Christian, I understand you're going to go, no, and and you're going to probably be fine with that. I'm asking the Christians, do you believe Scripture? Those of you who say you're Christians, do you believe that Jesus really is risen? Because if he's risen, there is no doubt he is Lord, and if he's Lord, he has the right to speak into how we live. And if you've been somebody who's saying, listen, Jesus is my Savior, but He's really not my Lord. I don't agree with Him on everything, and I don't agree with His Word on everything, so I'm going to do the things that I agree with, but I'm not going to go along with the things that I don't agree with. He's not your Lord. You're the Lord. So you need to kind of work through that this next week. The last thing that I know is going to create some tension is this quote from a book that I've just finished reading. It's a fabulous book. Not because it's about a lesbian woman who uh, came to know Christ. It's a fabulous book because, frankly, it confronted me in my sin and spoke to me about my own sin in a way that I hadn't been spoken to since Scripture, since I first started opening up Scripture. The book is by a woman named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. I know that's a a mouthful, long name, okay? So I just call her Rosaria. I never met her before, but I'm on a first-name basis with her. Anyway, she was... For a number of years a fully tenured professor of literature at the University of Syracuse and and fully uh, ensconced in the gay community uh, a thoroughgoing lesbian, uh, living with a woman, her partner, in a gay community, and she was a pillar of the gay community, and she taught um, queer theory and feminist theory in literature uh, at, at uh, Syracuse University, and was in charge of all the um, gay and homosexual uh, graduate students. She was their advisor for everything, and, and, and it was just well known, uh, just thoroughly connected and she was getting ready to write her second book. It was gonna be a book about the Christian right, which was probably not gonna be very complimentary to the Christian right. And she talked about this one time at a conference, and somebody challenged her that if she was gonna write a book on the Christian right, she ought to read the Bible before she did that and at least know what the Christian right believes. And so she did. And wouldn't you know it, the power of the gospel got a hold of her and started dragging her towards Jesus. And at the end of three years she said, I can't but submit to the power of Jesus Christ in my life. And not without tremendous pain. It destroyed her life as she knew it. It ruined her career. It ruined her community. She had people in her office screaming at her. Claiming that they had ruined, uh, she had ruined her, their lives. Just yelling and screaming at her. And yet she did it. And so... She left Syracuse and was invited to go to what she calls a, a very Christian community, a place called Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. And she was asked to teach for a year at Geneva College, which was a Christian college, a Presbyterian college, a reformed Presbyterian college. And in the midst of that, she went from Syracuse University to this, and she said it was, it was culture shock, okay? Okay. But in the midst of that, she was asked to address at one time the student body, all Christians, and the faculty, all Christian faculty, about her journey to coming to grips with the gospel. And she said she really didn't want to do it, but in the end she submitted to it and she decided to do it. But she said she was a little surprised by the reaction to her talk. And so what I'm going to quote from here as we end is is her response to the response to her talk. My talk generated a lot of questions. Some questions revealed what these students, these Christian students, had not yet learned about God's grace. One student asked, how do you know you are healed if you're not having sex with a man? In return, I asked him, why is my health as a Christian determined by having sex at all? And I'm going to let that one just hang there for a minute. Why is anybody's health as a Christian determined by having sex? Why? That is a really disordered understanding of God and Scripture. I went on to explain what has always seemed obvious to me, but often comes as a great shock to Christians. I explained that too often Christians see sexual sin as merely sexual excess. To a Christian, sex is God's recreation for you as long as you play in God's playground, marriage. What Christians don't realize is that sexual sin is not recreational sex gone overboard. Sexual sin is predatory. It won't be healed by redeeming the context or the genders. Sexual sin must simply be killed. What is left of your sexuality after this annihilation is up to God, but healing to the sexual sinner is death, nothing more, nothing less. I told my audience that too many Christian fornicators, a fornicator is somebody who has sex outside of marriage, I told my audience that too many Christian fornicators plan that marriage will redeem their sin. Too many Christian masturbators plan that marriage will redeem their patterns. Too many young Christian pornographers think that having legitimate sex will take away the desire to have illicit sex. They are wrong. And the marriages that result from this kind of thinking are dangerous places. I know why more than 50% of Christian marriages end up in divorce. It's because Christians act as though marriage redeems sin. Marriage does not redeem sin. Only Jesus can do that. My Christian audience seemed a little shocked to hear this. Some of you might be a little shocked too. Let's pray. The guys are going to come up and lead us in our time of reflection. God, these are strong and challenging words, but they come from... They come from your text, your word. And so, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the power of the resurrected Christ, I just pray that we would open our hearts and be filled with you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.